All right, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 tonight. And we'll only have one more week in the, if we're thinking about this in academic terms, um, one more week in this sort of fall semester. So we'll pick back up uh, the second Wednesday in January, which I believe is the 8th. Uh, but we will meet next week, take a few weeks off for the holiday break, uh, and then resume in January. So we won't quite finish uh, the book of First John uh, until we get into the spring a little bit. There'll be three or four studies as we get into January. But one of the things that we try to commit to at Faith Bible Church is a, a steady diet of expository preaching. Expository preaching is preaching that is verse by verse, passage by passage, book by book, through the Bible. Defining it simply would say expository teaching makes sure that the point of the text is the point of the sermon or the lesson. Uh, and so we do take momentary breaks from this methodology from time to time, but we think it's the best practice to take our church through the scriptures as systematically and as sequentially as we can. Now, this is not always the easiest approach, but I do think it's worth it because if we preach the Bible expositionally, we're more likely to hit on the things that matter to God. And at the same time, I'm less tempted to, to, to just lounge around those ideas that are most familiar or most important to me. Uh, because as I've said before, I, I have very little to say, truly. Uh, everything I have to say could fill one sermon, maybe a sermon and a half. Uh, but God, we know, has a lot to say, and that's why he's given us the 66 books that are in your Bible. He's given those words to us to speak to us. And so just pray for Mark, pray for me, pray for all those teachers that you sit under that we would be faithful to what God has revealed. And one of the reasons I mention this is that we are at a place in the book of First John that has been a little bit difficult for me to organize. I was comforted this week. I was seeking some help on today's passage from a commentary by a guy named I. Howard Marshall, and Marshall taught at Aberdeen in Scotland, and I think I can say with some conviction that he was one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world up until his passing, I think which was in 2015 or so. And anyway, he, he said in his commentary concerning this section of 1 John, he said, it is not easy to find a single uncomplicated strand of thought running through the epistle at this point. <laughs> So Marshall just pointing out that, that John is beginning to pile his ideas on top of one another. So what started out as, as three distinct tests for the true believer, tests we were sort of taking one at a time, they, they've now started to, to intertwine, to intermingle. The love test is mixing in with the obedience tests, and they're both mis mixing in with the doctrinal test. And so I've been challenged by the content of this letter, but I'll, I've also been challenged by just John's style, the way that he writes. And I've certainly been challenged by this encouragement, this continued encouragement uh, to love. It was Frederick Lehman who wrote a hymn on God's love, and he, he said that he found verse 3 of his famous hymn. It was etched into the walls at an insane asylum. And I'm not sure why he was at an insane asylum, but he saw these words there, and they're familiar words. You'll, you'll recognize them. He said, could, he wrote, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, 
Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's just beautiful words. And, and that's the topic we're continuing with today. Clearly, John can't say enough about it, this subject of love. It's one of his favorite lessons for the church. It was the church historian, a guy named Jerome. And he tells the story of the Apostle John that was delivered to him, that in the final weeks of his life, Jerome says that John, a, a week, and he would be carried actually into the church at Ephesus as they would gather. And in this weak and dying old man, he would, he would repeat one simple phrase to the congregation, love one another, love one another. And we know through studying this letter that to John, love means more than having just sort of warm sentimental feelings toward each other. He means more than just, just getting along. What John means as he talks about love is sacrifice and submit to one another. Lay down your lives for each other. Seek each other's good. This is a man who put a premium on love, not sentiment. What John means is sacrifice as he talks about this subject. With that and with the sheer amount of content in this letter dealing with love, we see, we understand, we agree with the fact that he's been called time and time again the apostle of love. He's deeply concerned with it. For John, true faith comes only through believing in Jesus Christ and accepting his command to love one another. The false teachers in and around Ephesus, however, what they claimed was special knowledge. They knew more. They had better understanding, more insight. They had a unique way of explaining Christ. They, they minimized the reality of sin. But, but John's ultimate charge against them was that they failed to love people. And if you fail to love what God loves, if you fail to love people, God loves people, then you don't love God. That's the very simple syllogism. And so let's just review for a moment where we see this as we've marched through this epistle together. In 1 John chapter 2, John says that our love for Christian brothers and sisters is proof that we're walking in the light. God is light. To walk in the light is to walk with him, to walk in his love. In chapter 3, we see that our love for our brothers and sisters is proof that we're alive in God. He says our love shows we have passed from death to life. We, we are people abundantly alive, and that life comes through God's love, and then it manifests itself through us by the way in which we love others. So our walking in light, our walking with God makes us loving. Our, our life, our being born again in God makes us loving. And in the first part of chapter 4, our love for each other is seen as evidence that, we're, that we know God and that we're abiding in God. And, and it's there in the section we studied last week where John says it's the cross that points us to the overwhelming extent of God's love for us. Remember, he says in, in chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest, it was made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
Verse 9, of course, connecting with the very familiar words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He, he gave his only begotten son. And that is love which is really beyond most of our thinking. That, that love is deeper and, and wider and fuller than we've scratched the surface of, which I'm so happy about the song you picked tonight because it connects with that whole idea. And maybe John 3.16 has become maybe a, a tired, over-memorized verse in in your mind, one that you've said so much that the force of it is gone. And if that's where you are, if God's love is just so general to you that it doesn't affect you in any, in any real way, open your Bible, see the way in which God's word help us, helps us understand the force of God's love. And, and one way it does this is by giving us some, some very rich examples one such example is the story of a father, a father who, like our heavenly father, also had one and only one son. That father is, of course, Abraham. The story of Abraham and Isaac is one that shows in preview form Jesus Christ. And you know the story. At an old age, Abraham was finally given a son. Abraham loved his son, his one and only son. That's how Genesis describes Isaac as Abraham's one and only son, very intentional language there. And as the Bible records it, God told Abraham to go to sacrifice the one and only son he loved. And because you know the story, you know that Abraham is obedient to God's command. He set out to obey God and worship God by, by making the extreme sacrifice of his one and only son. And you know that to make the sacrifice, Isaac, he would carry the wood for the sacrifice to the top of Mount Moriah. He would carry the material for his own altar. And you know that, that Abraham would then build the altar and, and make it ready for the sacrifice. And, and you have to know that, that Abraham took every action in anguish as the reality of what God was asking him to do drew nearer and nearer and nearer. And so Isaac would take his place on the altar and Abraham would make ready to plunge a knife into his son. He was determined to obey God, but then, of course, you know what took place. You know that God provides this ram. God provided a sacrifice so that Isaac would be spared. And though Isaac would be spared, a vivid and important picture would be painted that day, a picture that would resurface thousands of years later at the cross of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, we see this, this son, another son, climbing a hill in the presence of his father, carrying his sacrificial cross, to Calvary, where God would subject him to death. Yet on that occasion, no substitute would be provided. No ram in the thicket would be seen. God the Father would actually go through with the sacrifice. No substitute would do the job. God sacrificed his own son. And he who was without sin received the wages of sin, which is death. And as you read through that scene in the Gospels, as you think about what it shows you about God, as you step, step back from it far enough and look at the whole picture, it displays all sorts of things about God. It displays his wrath, it displays his justice, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his great grace. But over the top of all of those things, what we see in the gospel picture is his love, his divine, active, sacrificial love. And so in our previous passage, if you remember, if you were here last time, John has reached that, that, ultimate, excuse me, that ultimate point in explaining God's love. 
He's come to a place in the epistle where he's commanded love, he's qualified love, he's talked in all these different circles about love, and so he culminates those commands by holding out the ultimate example of love in all of the universe. He goes to the cross, highlights it. And so with that, we arrive at our text for tonight, John 4, 17 to 21. Love shows up again, 11 times, actually, in these few verses. Beginning in verse 17, inspired of the Holy Spirit, John writes, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. So I hope you're not tired of talking about love. At least one more week, okay? Today, tonight, we're going to look at love's effect on two different spheres. So first, love in the believer's life, and then second, love in the believer's relationships. But first, to set that up, I need to finish talking about one of the overwhelming biblical truths related to God's love that we see here, and it's this, that in God, we have this wonderful display of what I call initiating love. John, in verse 19 of this passage, I think briefly but, but powerfully points this out. He, he's been preaching love. He's used love as a test to know whether or not someone is a true Christian. And, and, and before we get all congratulatory about the love that we see in our life, before we puff up at the great love we, we, we feel and express on a daily basis, he puts things in the right order. And in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. There's a fount of this love, and it is from him. I was thinking about this study, and an old journal entry came to mind. This is about 10 years ago. One of my twin daughters was four years old. And this is one of those proud moments as a parent. Um, that I'm going to share, and, and usually, you know, you, self, you share more self-deprecating stories as a parent. This is one of those proud moments as a parent, and it was a prayer that one of my daughters had prayed um, during some discipline that I was delivering to her, um, and it's just, and it was so beautiful. Obviously, I didn't write it out for her. She prayed this prayer, and I said, okay, I got to go write that down. That was really, really good. Didn't expect I would share it in a lesson or a talk one day, but here we are. This is one of my girls, four years old. She says, Dear God, I'm sorry that I am mean to my sister. Please help me to be nice to her. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I love you because you first loved me. Amen. Four years old. She got it. She understood something about God's initiating love. That is God's initiating love. And and what we need to know is we don't have a chance to, to, at being loving, we don't have any chance at all 
at being loving if we don't first see his love for us. All other loves are a selfish substitute. All other loves are short-sighted if we cannot see his initiating, first-moving love. You see, there's a really important difference in the stories of Isaac and Jesus. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to the command of the loving God whom he worshipped. But God, he sacrificed his son to save a people who left to themselves do not love him. Who are by nature hostile to him, who have shown themselves to be rebellious against him and his law. This is the condition of those who God loves. God doesn't love the lovable, God loves the unlovable. Listen to C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves. The Four Loves is my favorite of, of Lewis's nonfiction books. And this is a powerful passage. He says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe, already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as, is, as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up, if I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Strong. Because again, this is a God, as we talk about God being love, who enjoyed perfect eternal love in the context of his triune existence. He didn't create us because he was lonely or, or needy. He had all the love he could have ever wanted or needed. So to say God is love is to recognize that very fact, the self-sufficient, glorious, triune nature of God. And within that, God created us to show creatures the nature of true love. Self-sacrificing, pure, unselfish, others-focused love. We would not have the first clue on how to express or, or, or see love at all without his supreme example, without his direction, without his initiation. And so that's why he shows us. And this, at the same time, this makes us, at the same time, a more loving and a more lovable people. We're not lovable in and ourselves. We're, we're lovable because God makes us lovable. Consider C.S. Lewis again. For the church has not beauty, but what the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, gives her. He does not find, Lewis writes, her lovely but he makes her lovely. Lewis basically saying, we're not found lovely and therefore loved. That's not how it works in God's economy. I did a wedding last week, two really beautiful young people getting married. The groom was handsome, the bride was beautiful. They were married. 
godly man, godly woman. They're attracted to one another for a myriad of different reasons, and so they're married. It was great. They're going to have a great life together. But consider it in these terms. The bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ, takes for himself a bride that is unattractive, unlovely, unfaithful, and loves her with an otherworldly love, and in turn, and this is an awesome truth, his love actually makes her lovely. His love makes her lovely. So get out of your mind any idea that, that you cleaned yourself up, made yourself lovely to God, and so therefore he loved you, and in turn, you accept his love. No, that's not what's going on. The only way to really accept God's love is to realize the extent to which you're unworthy of it. That's what this simple verse is explaining. We love because he first loved us. Which means I do my level best at understanding God's love when I embrace just how unlovely I am. When I squash any thinking that I might have that tries to say that God looked down and said, man, that Jay, wow, he's one pulled together guy. He's worthy. I kind of want him on my team. I think I'll love him. That thinking, which I actually carried around for a while in my life, actually distanced me from God's love. It didn't make me closer to God's love. It actually distanced me from it. Again, I do my best at understanding God's love when I think about, when I think about it as completely ununderstandable, if that's a word. I begin to understand it when I think in terms of God knowing everything about me, him knowing my thoughts, him knowing my petty jealousies and my pride and my deceit. I understand God's love most when I realize that I don't get to understand it. It's at its best when I can't make sense of how God could love someone like me or you. And the times that I arrive at that place, when I get there, which isn't all the time, but the times that, I, that I'm in that place, those are the times where it becomes a lot easier to love other people, right? Because when I'm clear on the fact that he loves me when I don't have it all together, not even close, that makes it a lot easier to love other people that don't have it all together. And when I'm there, when I'm abiding in God and the place of at least thinking about God's love in a proper way, in proper categories, that's when, to use the language of 1 John 4, his love is being perfected in me. You see that? And that's why he initiated his love, so that I could love in a way that is distinct from the twisted, self-serving ways that the world tries to use love. I can love that jerk in my life. I can love my obnoxious neighbor. I can love an ungrateful friend because God's love is working in me. It's otherworldly. It doesn't make sense. I can't understand it, but it's there. God's love is being perfected in me when I don't need people to be lovely to get my love. Think about it that way. God's love is being perfected in me when I don't need people to be lovely to get my love. Because that's really how we operate. So as we move into the rest of the outline, let's just quickly look at the love in the believer's life and the love in the believer's relationships. I had to spend time talking about God's initiating love. So now quickly, the rest of the outline. Love in the believer's life. Love does two things according to verses 17 and 18. It builds confidence. 
and it banishes fear. So first, the text says that we receive love from God, and then it moves in and through our life. It has a perfecting effect, and that builds confidence in us for the day of judgment. Again, this is mind-boggling. Because of love, we can stand before a holy God, we can stand before the Lord of the universe with confidence. Some of your versions probably say boldness. We can stand before he who created us with, with boldness. That's, a, that's an astounding bit of truth. But then the text tells us why. We can do that because as he is, so also are we. Therefore, harsh judgment by our holy God is a non-factor for the believer. Why? Because as he is, as Christ is, so are we. What's that mean? Well, it means Christ has suffered God's judgment for us on the, Christ, or on the cross. So just as John in his gospel points out, John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And so what this points out is for a Christian, judgment isn't coming for us. Judgment is not future. It is past. Your sins have been judged at the cross. They will never again be brought against you. That the Father cannot judge your sins again without judging his Son, which means that the Father deals with you as he deals with his own beloved Son. You get Jesus' status. His record shows up as your record. As he is, we are. So said a little bit different way, what verse 17 is saying, as Jesus Christ has already experienced God's judgment on the cross, we have the same relationship to God's judgment that Jesus Christ now has, which is to say it's not going to touch us because it satisfactorily touched him. And now he sits at God's right hand, righteous and free of judgment. So the gospel basically says, the judge who declared you guilty is the same one who took your punishment and died for your sin so that he could declare you righteous. And knowing that, how can we ever be afraid? We don't have to be afraid of our past because he first loved us. From the the very first, if God loved us when we were outside the family, when we were disobeying him, how much more does he love us now that we are one of his children? No need to fear the past. No need to dig up the shame of the past, wondering how it might be used against you. He, he, He knows your past, and that's why he saved you. You needed saving from yourself, from your sin, from the sins of others. So in love, you were saved by him. And there's no need to fear the present either because we're abiding in him and we're abiding in his great love and that perfect love casts out all fear. You know, fear showed up when sin entered the world. Genesis 3, chapter 10. Adam's saying, we hid because we were afraid. But proper fear is reverence. Children who are terrorized by a father are not loved by him. Children who revere a father likely are loved by him. It's just as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. 
He goes on, he tells Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So judgment is not something that believers, those walking with the Lord, need to fear. We can have boldness, and we have that boldness on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. It's Him, in Him, we have that boldness, that confidence. So then how does this translate into our relationships? Verses 20 and 21. Two ways. Our genuine love for others exposes the truth and expects consistency. Exposes the truth and expects consistency. In terms of exposing the truth, look at verse 20. It basically says this. For the seventh time in 1 John, we have a verse that begins, if someone says... Seven times John deals with the claims of the false teachers, and every time he, he gives a, a warning about them, he calls them out to be liars. Back in chapters 1 and 2, to, to claim to know God and have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness of disobedience, that's a lie. Again in chapter 2, to claim to possess the Father while denying the deity of the Son, that's a lie. Then here, to claim to love God while hating the, brother, the brethren, that's a lie. These are the three black lies of the epistle. They're moral, they're doctrinal, they're social. And in the case of verse 20, however loudly people may affirm that they love God, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, yet at the same time their life is characterized by hatred toward a brother, John said, he's a liar. Love exposes the truth about a person. It is a diagnostic tool. It reveals hypocrisy. False teachers, false Christians, they, they, they can appear pious, they can make a, a show of their devotion, they can impress with, with great knowledge, and elite knowledge in the terms of, of the late first century. But if they're not willing to tangibly and to sacrificially love those around them, the love of God is not in them. And if the love of God is not in them, they do not know God. And so ultimately what John expects is consistency. That's how the chapter finishes. He closes this section with a command. This commandment we have from him, from the Lord Jesus, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And I like that John finishes with a command because it underscores the fact that love is an action, not a mere emotion. And alongside being a command, it's, it's a consistent conclusion. To love God is to love your brother also. He loved us first, so we love. He loved when we're unlovable, therefore we can love anyone. An 11-year-old girl and her 8-year-old brother fought over everything. I can very much relate to this. So their father was surprised when the girl made an artistic card for her brother's birthday. Inside the card, she wrote, Happy birthday to my nine-year-old brother. I am so glad to have a brother to love and that God gave me you. P.S. Don't read this out loud or I'll twist your head off. <laughs> now, the little girl's got a ways to go, but at least she's working. She's working at loving her brother. She wants to love her brother. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to work at love with those that you live with and those that you work with and those who are, are in this church, those in your neighborhood. You may not feel love towards someone you think is a jerk, but just try loving them. 
I think you'll be surprised at what you find. Try to live sacrificially for the joy of others. Try to, try to love others the way God has initiated love toward you. Because if you put the happiness of others above your own, you know what you're likely to get? Happiness. God manages to return to us those things that we lay down in his name. The more you see God's love surfacing in your life, especially toward those you would not normally love, the more you will have boldness at his coming because there's no fear in love. The confidence will fill you. All right, let's pray. We'll be done. Father, thank you for this text. Um, as tricky and confusing as some of the language is in it, um, there's so much good material here and, and so much to calibrate our hearts to where we, we need to be. Thank you for taking us unlovely people and making us lovable and lovely and vessels of love so that we can love others regardless of who they are. No one else on earth is going to be capable of loving the unlovely except for those that you've set your love upon. And so, Lord, give us a heart for that mission and um, burden us with our, our task and our responsibility to fulfill it. Thank you for time together. Uh, pray for safety for those who are heading home tonight. And uh, again, just thinking about the Wombles and, and what they're going through right now, uh, be with them in a special way. Show them your, your deep and abiding love. It's in Christ's name we pray.